welcome you once again to the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today, finally, the truth about the COVID vaccines has been made public. You're going to see something remarkable. For the first time in four years, Congress in the House has allowed a hearing, an official hearing, to examine what do we know now about the vaccines from some of the leading medical doctor scientists in the world. Two are cardiologists, board certified, and one of those also has a PhD in cardiology. The other is one of America's leading pathologists. They are making statements based upon more than 3,500 scientific peer-reviewed studies by scientists all over the world at some of the most prestigious institutions showing that the vaccines should never have been approved, that they are not like normal vaccines. And you'll hear the difference in their testimony of what is a normal vaccine, like a tetanus vaccine or flu vaccine, compared to this vaccine. These are biological agents. We've never implanted biological agents into a person's body where the body then produces a toxin. This is not how normal vaccine works. And then they don't know when will it stop producing the spike protein. And it's dangerous. And they're talking about all the myocarditis, endocarditis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, stroke, heart attack. And as you'll hear one of them, Dr. McCullough, say that they found a blood clot. Now, normally a blood clot, for most blood clots, they're like a little bit of jelly when you rub them between your thumb and forefinger. He says, that's not what we're finding. For the first time in medical history, we're finding one, and he just talked about one that day or the day before in a patient's leg that was two feet long. Of course, that's going to block up that whole vein or artery and can lead to a stroke or heart attack. And the numbers of people being adversely affected are staggering when you consider that five billion people receive the vaccines. And some people have received up to 10 vaccines of COVID. They keep getting booster after booster because they keep being promoted, scared to death. You must get it. And children in particular, where they have no risk whatsoever. So three of the orthodoxist superstars, one, Dr. McCullough, has lectured in every medical school in America. He is the most cited cardiologist in world history about the heart and the kidneys. He's published over 700 peer-reviewed journal papers. And he is as pro-vaccine, pro-orthodox as you get. And yet, he has been attacked. All of these have been attacked because they suggested help the person early who has symptoms of COVID. Yet we were told not to. Stand back. Stand down. Don't do anything. This went against the Hippocratic Oath. And they're going to lay it all out. So we appreciate that this is the first hearing. Hopefully there'll be more. But now officially on the congressional record, for the first time, you're going to get this information. 
I hope you can watch this. Going to Gary Knoll, uh, go to prn.live, scroll down to archives and scroll down to Gary Knoll, and you'll be able to watch it. If you can't watch it, at least you can hear it. And it's extremely important. I believe that we are the first radio program. I could be wrong, but I looked around that is bringing this information to you because the hearing was just held. The trouble is it was held at the same time that the hearing with, uh, uh, with Anthony Fauci was heard. So as a result, all the energy went to them, and nobody's broadcasting this. And I can see why. Why wouldn't the New York Times or Rachel Maddow, the major promoters of COVID vaccine, why wouldn't they want to hear the scientists, mainstream orthodox scientists, talk about why no one should be taking the vaccine? Yeah? So now we're going to hear from them directly. We're going to go to the hearing and when the first of the three doctors began to give their opening statements down to an extremely historic program. Well, we can start with you. Thank you, Representative uh, Green. And it's an honor to be here. And I appreciate everything you're doing for your constituents and for the American people. Uh, I'm Dr. Ryan Cole. I'm a board certified anatomic and clinical pathologist trained at the Mayo Clinic. I've been in practice for uh, over 20 years and ran an independent medical laboratory um, for uh, two decades and uh, ended up having to sell that because I spoke out against this COVID narrative and uh, got canceled by insurance companies for, quote, unprofessional behavior for telling the truth. So it's an honor to be here today. Um, do you want me to do an opening statement as well or just inter introduction? Of course, an opening statement. Okay, opening statement. So. You know, we're at an unprecedented time in American history. And it used to be that we were a, a nation of the people, for the people, by the people. And now we're of the corporation, for the corporation, and by the corporation. Uh, countless Americans have been harmed because people have believed uh, biased media. People have believed uh, corrupt pharmaceutical narratives. Countless people in this nation are hurting and being ignored. Now, I'm a pathologist. Uh, the pathologist is the most important doctor that you never meet, that you always hope is right. So we see a part of people every day. We see your blood, we see your microbiology, we see your tissues under the microscope, and the cells don't lie. And what we've found in this unfortunate four years is we've been ignored. We see the damage. And later in the hearing, I have some slides that I, if we have time, I'll share because the picture's worth a thousand words. But we see what's happening to the people, and I'm tired of the American people being gaslit and being told, well, it's anything and everything, but it's not the, quote, vaccine. This is a gene transfection product that billions of people have received, and genetic products need to be monitored for a long period of time. We have countless people injured that are being ignored, and we can't do this anymore. And you know, I'm not here to judge people if you got one shot, two shot, three shots, whatever. I'm not here to judge. I'm just saying don't get another one. This is an unproven, unsafe product. We need to acknowledge that there's injury happening around the world, and we need to stop these products immediately, not just the COVID shots. Any mRNA platform going forward is unproven and unsafe. And this is about an oath that all of us took. We took an oath to first do no harm. Primum non nocere. We take that oath seriously. Most of us sitting here have given up almost everything. So we're grateful to be here 
and I'm grateful for the opportunity to ask questions or answer any questions you may ask going forward. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cole. Dr. Peter McAuliffe. Mr. Uh, uh, Madam Chairwoman and uh, Senator Johnson, Mr. Davidson, uh, it's a great honor to be here uh, as I've been in Washington now several times. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas. I'm trained in public health uh, and have a master's degree in public health and epidemiology. Uh, I'm very experienced in academic medicine. I have uh, over 780 peer-reviewed publications cited the National Library of Medicine. Uh, I have over 70 papers on the COVID-19 pandemic, both on uh, many aspects of the pandemic, including early treatment and now uh, vaccine injuries, disabilities, and, and deaths. Uh, I have been on data safety monitoring boards uh, and interacted with the FDA and big pharma and device companies. I've interacted with the European medicine agencies, as well as the MHRA uh, in the past, lectured at virtually every medical school in the United States. I'm well known uh, to all of them. You know, we're four years into this, and this is the first time that the U.S. House of Representatives has heard from doctors who are directly treating patients with both COVID-19 and the vaccine injuries. That's four years too late. I think that's a very important lesson learned. I never supported these vaccines. I never told a single patient that it was safe to take a vaccine. I didn't take a COVID-19 vaccine myself because it wasn't safe. And I published an op-ed in The Hill in August of 2020, before they came out. The title of that op-ed is The Great Gamble of the COVID-19 Vaccine Pandemic. The reason why it was a gamble is because the vaccines, and of Americans who took the vaccine, it's roughly 75% of Americans took at least one shot according to the COVID states program. Of those, 94% took a messenger RNA vaccines. So we can re restrict our comments to messenger RNA vaccines provided by Pfizer and Moderna. These vaccines are a brand new technology that installs the genetic code for the lethal part of the virus, which is the spike protein, the spine on the surface of the virus. This was an extraordinary gamble because there was no knowledge of what was going to turn this off. Once the genetic code gets in the body, there was no knowledge of, does the body get rid of the genetic code? What shuts it off? Will some people produce too much genetic uh, 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 code and have it keep moving from cell to cell and too much spike protein? It was known then that the spike protein was lethal. And to give a genetic code for a potentially lethal protein that was devised in a Chinese biosecurity lab to Americans was the most dangerous proposition our government agencies could have ever put forward to our country. And what we've learned on this is uh, extraordinary. Castriuta and colleagues has published the messenger RNA is physically circulating in the blood for at least 28 days. That's as long as they've looked. Crossan and colleagues from Harvard has shown the messenger RNA is stuck in the human heart 30 days after the vaccine when people die. And there's inflammation around it, presumably due to the spike protein. Rolkin and colleagues from Stanford have shown the messenger RNA is stuck in human lymph nodes for at least two months. And that's as long as they've looked. Now, the spike protein, which is produced by the messenger RNA, is widely circulatory in blood and shown by Harvard, by Ogata and colleagues, Swank, and recently Brogna in Germany. Now, Brogna in Germany looked six months afterwards 
and at least half the people who took the shots had vaccine spike proteins circulating in their bloodstream. That's as long as they've looked. And they can identify it because Pfizer and Moderna have an amino acid signature on their spike protein to let us identify. We know that it's Pfizer and Moderna. It doesn't come from the natural virus. It's coming from the vaccine. That's proven. The spike protein now, in 3,400 peer-reviewed papers and growing, is proven to cause heart damage and myocarditis. Our regulatory agencies agree. Every regulatory agency in the world agrees. There's actually guidelines now in the UK and Australia about how to diagnose and manage vaccine myocarditis. That's how common this is. It accelerates atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, causes tremendous swings in blood pressure and heart rate called posterior orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS, causes neurologic injury, stroke, both ischemic and hemorrhagic, paralyzing syndromes, including Guillain-Barre syndrome, small fiber neuropathy, ear ringing, it causes blood clots. The spike protein is physically found in blood clots. The largest blood clots that we've ever seen in clinical medicine, typically a blood clot that someone would get after a hip surgery or on an airplane would be a centimeter or so. It's common in my practice. Yesterday, I saw patients with 15, 17, two feet blood clots in their legs after the vaccine. We see blood clots both on the arterial side and on the venous side. This is distinctly unusual. The body is set up after the vaccine to form blood clots. And this is particularly harmful in people with a predilection to blood clots or other provocateurs, hip surgery, uh, smoking, supplemental estrogens, prolonged immobility, uh, et cetera. The fourth major category where the vaccines clearly cause injury and damage is autoimmunity. The human body recognizes the spike protein as non-human. And so the body attacks its own cells in an attempt to try to fight this. And because of this, the body then expresses markers of autoimmunity that now I routinely test in my practice, the antinuclear antibody, the ANA test, which is a test we do for systemic lupus, the anti-citrullated peptide test for rheumatoid arthritis, and then the ANCA test, the antineutrophilocytoplasmic antibody test, these are now all proven in the peer-reviewed literature. These blood tests turn positive in response to the vaccine, and people develop a variety of autoimmune syndromes. This is what we're seeing clinically. So my observations are based in terms of what I'm seeing clinically, what I'm reading in the peer-reviewed literature. And in the peer-reviewed literature, large numbers of cases are being reported. I want to cite one paper from the peer-reviewed literature, Lane and colleagues, uh, that's assembled now a series of 18,204 patients with myopericarditis, 18,000. Now I can tell you my whole career, I saw two cases before COVID-19. Now I am seeing myocarditis on a daily basis. The number of myocarditis cases in the United States before the pandemic was roughly 200 to 400 cases in the whole country per year. Now we're seeing this in the thousands and these are limited sets. Now, of those 18,204 spontaneously reported cases, the death rate in these patients is 0.22. So fortunately, majority of people survive, but sadly, some die. In the published papers of people describing the cases, the death rate has ranged from 0.41 for myopericarditis to 45.9%, 45.9%. Holscher and colleagues, of which I am a senior author on this paper, is now uh, has a paper in the preprint server. Now it's been fully accepted to the um, uh, European Society of Cardiology Journal. 
has proven that myocarditis is fatal when autopsies are, conform, are, are confirmed. When the doctors suspect myocarditis, there's a 100% rate of confirmation that it's fatal myocarditis. When there's general death that's occurred in a vaccinated patient, our data suggests that it's roughly 74%. If an autopsy would be done, it would be confirmed that the, the vaccine was the cause of death. Today, a Rasmussen poll is out, and the Rasmussen poll has shown that 53% of Americans think the COVID-19 vaccines are causing serious injuries leading to large numbers of, quote, unexplained deaths. So the word is out. I've made the call on the floor of the, uh, with Senator Johnson and a panel in the U.S. Senate, multiple state senates, the European Parliament, I'm making the call today. The COVID-19 vaccines should be removed from the market. They're not safe for human use. Those are my comments. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. McAuliffe. Thank you very much. Dr. Melhone. Yes, um, thank you very much. What an honor it is to be here. Uh, my name is Kirk Melhone. Uh, I am board certified in pediatrics and pediatric cardiology. Uh, before my medical degree, I got a PhD in cardiovascular physiology and pharmacology. My thesis was on what causes inflammation in the heart. It so happens the pathway I was studying is the exact pathway that COVID, the spike protein, causes inflammation within our body. I, I wanted to share what my heart is um, that I bring to this hearing as a physician and a scientist. And it goes back to two basic historic ancient texts. Uh, Ryan, Dr. Ryan Cole already alluded to the Hippocratic Oath, um, which says, do no harm. So as physicians, we are called, we have taken an oath to do no harm. The second, and I consider this as I share my thoughts and my education and my experiences, uh, comes from the Bible. And it says, the goal of my instruction is love, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Um, we have, um, when I share what I'm seeing in my patients and throughout the literature, I share from a place of compassion, not of judgment. When we see these patients, regardless of how they've been injured, um, we need to bring the loving and compassionate care to bear on these people who have been injured, and we have to find a way to treat them. Um, we can't just let them. There are too many of them, as Dr. McCall so clearly put out. Um, and I wanted, as he said at the end, at what, the, what Rasmussen was seeing, I wanted to share because sometimes it's look. It's interesting to um, when we're facing sometimes the non-science when we're facing something. The non-scientists often show us and they look at data a little bit differently, um, and a lot of times that comes from the financial, the insurance company, because the insurance company is basing their entire livelihood on well people not getting sick, and knowing what percentage of well people should get sick. So Ed Dowd um, is one of those financial guys, and he's been looking at the insurance data. Um, and uh, his research team recently evaluated the, the data out of UK. And, uh, and it was from the United Kingdom death and disability trends for cardiovascular diseases in 15 to 44-year-olds. What's important about that statement is you shouldn't have cardiovascular disease in 15 to 44 year olds. So if this is now a spike, this is something we really have to look at. 
So they found very concerning data, and I quote, we show a large increase in the morbidity and mortality due to disease of the cardiovascular system from 2021. The increase in disability claims is consistent with the increase in excess deaths, and both are highly significant. The data show a 13% increase in excess cardiovascular death in 2020, then a 30% increase in 2021, and a 44% increase in 2022. Something significantly has increased excess cardiovascular deaths in 2021, and it continues. As humans, physicians, and scientists, we should be curious with what has happened. There's really only one major thing that happened in 2021, and that was the rollout of this untested vaccine. So as we go forward, I'll happy to answer questions and go into deeper explanations of and try to bring truth and transparency and honesty to this discussion. But thank you for making this happen. Thank you. Powerful opening testimonies. Thank you each. Um, I'll start with question and then we're all going to take turns up here and, and, and we really appreciate uh, your your honest and open answers. I'd like to start out, um, one of the things that's talked about is vaccine hesitancy. Um, so I just want to ask you guys in the beginning, what is the difference, uh, Dr. McCullough, I'll start with you. What is the difference between the old vaccines we've grown up with that we know and trust versus the mRNA vaccine um, that's now the COVID vaccine, but could be made into more vaccines? Could you explain that a little bit? The existing vaccines, now they have grown in number and intensity over time. And uh, the mothers know this on the childhood schedule. It's called the ACIP schedule. ACIP mm -hmm. is a committee uh, charged by the CDC to recommend uh, what American children should receive. Uh, these conventional vaccines are either proteins, uh, such as the tetanus toxoid or the pneumococcal protein, hepatitis B protein. Mm -hmm. And they're simply proteins that the body responds to, the proteins themselves can't cause disease. You can't get tetanus from a tetanus shot. Uh, or they are uh, killed viruses. So for instance, uh, influenza is a killed virus. You get a flu shot. You can't get flu from a flu shot because the virus is killed, but people get flu-like syndrome and they, they get confused with this, uh, but it's a killed virus. Or it's a live attenuated virus. That is the virus is alive but it's crippled and it can't cause serious disease. Mm -hmm. And an example there would be the shingles vaccine or the chickenpox vaccine. And people will know that because if they've ever had the shingles vaccine, of which I've, I've had, uh, one will have a very a serious reaction in the arm because the virus is alive. It just can't cause full-blown shingles, but it can cause a serious reaction. All of these conventional vaccines limit the degree of which the vaccine itself can directly cause disease. Now, there are vaccine reactions, and there can be serious immune reactions to vaccines that are recognized. Mm -hmm. And they're so serious that in 1986, under the Reagan administration, uh, the, the uh, uh, Congress and HHS wrote the vaccine injury compensation legislation, mm -hmm. which said conventional vaccines have unavoidable harms. So even the conventional vaccines that we trust, I've taken them all, my children have taken them all, they do have unavoidable harms. And what's grown out of this is people have felt 
that if something has a harm, there must be freedom of choice on all forms of vaccines at every level. So no vaccine should be mandated, in my view, at any level. Mm -hmm. None of them are uh, sufficiently compelling. None of them completely present, pre prevent the disease. Uh, the conventional vaccines actually have little data to support they block transmission. Our CDC on the website says the polio vaccine doesn't stop transmission. Mm -hmm. They said right on their website. So we don't have all the major outbreaks of pertussis and diphtheria. Uh, uh, they, they all occur mumps. They all occur when people are vaccinated. So, so these vaccines are not perfect, but they do pro provide a basis of which we try to ensure some health of our pediatric population. Messenger RNA is drastically different. Mm -hmm. Messenger RNA is the genetic code for part of a virus. And when it installs in the human body, it hijacks the body's machinery to read the genetic code called ribosomes. And then they produce an uncontrolled amount of a protein, in this case, the spike protein, for an uncontrolled duration of time. So this is very different than a tetanus shot. Tetanus shot is a specific amount of tetanus toxoid, period. The body digests this and goes away. This is genetic code that produces the spike protein, it looks like, potentially indefinitely. The human body, to our knowledge, has no way of breaking down the messenger RNA and has no way of breaking down the spike protein. There are no described enzymatic pathways for the human body to dispose of this. In my view, the COVID-19 vaccine program has complicated this because people have taken unprecedented numbers of shots. If one was to follow the U.S. government program right now, taking a shot every six months with the primary series, they'd be approaching 10 shots. This is unprecedented to give 10 sets of, of inoculations. So let me just clarify, if they are, if the body can't break down the spike protein and they're continuing to, you know, and they're forced, and I, I totally agree with you, Dr. Milhone, it's, we're not holding uh, people responsible for this that were forced to take the vaccine, people that believe they were doing the right thing, they were told over and over again on the television, you're doing the right thing, this is how you care for others. Um, but if these people are taking these vaccines and getting boosters and so forth, what what does the spike protein do inside the body? If you can't, if our bodies can't break it down, what what is the spike protein doing? It's found circulating in blood. Recent paper by former NIH researcher David Scheim uh, uh, suggests, based on all the data, that forty percent of it is actually linked to red blood cells. So it's actually causing clumping of red blood cells, and we see micro clumps of red blood cells now in multiple studies. Uh, it's inside white blood cells. Bruce Patterson at IncelDX has shown that it's inside CDC uh, 16 monocytes. And Dr. Cole will share with us later on, the spike protein is penetrating all the tissues in the body. So it's actually in tissue layers in the body. And, uh, and it appears to be accumulating. And it doesn't go away. It, it's unknown. It's unknown. In the, uh, in the Brogna paper of interest, people who took Pfizer and Moderna, 50% of people who take the shots have detectable circulating spike protein. 50% don't. Hmm. And in a paper by Schmeling and colleagues from Denmark of interest, 30% of people who took the shots have no side effects whatsoever. None. Not even a sore arm. It looks like they don't develop side effects. Another just under two-thirds uh, have some modest side effects. And then in the Schmeling study, it was 4.2% of people 
who really get severe side effects. In our CDC vSafe data, which over 10 million Americans volunteered in the data set, 7.7% of people really get sick and have to go to the emergency room or be hospitalized. So what we've learned is the vaccines have been broadly applied. Thank goodness most people are okay. But there is a small but significant number of people who really get in trouble with the vaccines. Multiply that times a big number of people who took the shots. That's the reason why we got a health crisis. That is a reason. Dr. Cole, I, I want to ask you and, and go further on what Dr. McAuliffe is talking about. Um, uh, there's been reports with embalmers talking about blood clots, um, and, and this has been labeled a conspiracy theory. Uh, is this a conspiracy theory? What are you seeing as a pathologist when you're looking at tissue and you're looking at blood? In your experience, what have you seen? Well, it's a scientific fact. It's not a conspiracy theory. And again, I have some images I can show later, but we saw during COVID increased clotting markers in patients that were sick with COVID. As Dr. McCullough mentioned, the lethal toxic part of this virus, the spike protein, has a propensity to cause blood to clump. These embalmers, I have many of these samples in, in my laboratory that we've looked at. These are unusual clots. And Dr. Pretorius out of South Africa, Dr. Kell out of the UK, Dr. Jordan Vaughn in Alabama have researched this. And the, the blood is forming a unique folding protein called amyloid. And these clots are almost like a, a rubber band or a rubber ball. And in, in pathology, you know, we, we use food descriptors for different things. A normal clot is kind of jelly-like in, in terms of consistency. Mm -hmm. These are very firm. Another important thing to piggyback on what Dr. McCullough said is compared to traditional vaccines, those you get in the arm, obviously there can be side effects from some of the chemical adjuvants. The, these shots, the gene is wrapped in a little fat bubble, a lipid nanoparticle. Now, if you look at the manufacturer's list of ingredients, all of these are not approved for human nor veterinary use and yet went into billions of arms. This fat bubble can go anywhere and everywhere in the body instead of staying in the arm. So this gene wrapped in a fat bubble can land anywhere or everywhere. And that's why we're seeing the side effects in the vaccine injured that we don't traditionally see with typical vaccines. Lipid nanoparticles were designed to carry chemotherapeutic agents to the brain. So these were designed to go everywhere. And so the first place they go is circulation. And then they will, that little, like a magnet, a positive negative charge, that fat bubble will attach to a cell, the gene will go in. Human cells are meant to make human proteins. Human cells are not meant to make foreign proteins. And when our cells start making foreign proteins, our immune system goes on high alert and says, attack, attack. And so our own immune system, our killer cells, our natural killer cells, will go in and say, this is an enemy, start destroying those cells. So we see liver damage, we see adrenal gland damage, we see brain damage, we see heart damage, we see damage of the blood vessels. So these clots are because an inflammatory response is happening in the lining of the blood vessels first and foremost. And then as the immune system reacts, it, there's this little waterfall cascade of this protein and this protein and this protein and this protein. I won't get into all the clotting factors. But because of this response, these clots form. And as Dr. McCullough mentioned, clinically he's seeing in patients 
clots that we have not seen historically. And, and these are large clots and these are firm clots and these are hard to dissolve clots because that protein I mentioned, amyloid, is not easily broken down by the human body. And there was a study that came out just last week or so um, showing in some vaccine injured patients that there's amyloid even depositing in the muscles. And that's because the muscle fibers are breaking down. So these patients with chronic fatigue, it's like the perfect poison protein, the spike protein. Does it cause clotting? Yes. Does it cause neurologic harm? Absolutely. Uh, an Italian study showed, it was a 19,000 patient study showed that 30%, almost a third, had neurologic harms, whether it was ringing in the ears, whether it was burning, whether it was whatnot, one third. So as much as we hear about you know, the blood harms, the clotting harms, the heart harms, neurologic harms are way up there and the autoimmune harms too. And that's because we shouldn't, and this is why I'm against this whole technology platform, you know, use it on the research level for rare genetic conditions or for targeting certain things. But when you put something in the body that goes everywhere, and as Dr. McCullough mentioned, doesn't have an off switch. This gene doesn't have an off switch. And it isn't mRNA. It is synthetic mRNA. Researchers out of Cambridge and Oxford recently published and showed that it's not just making spike protein. It's this little message and code is slipping. And if you shift the frame when you're trying to make a protein, you may make other proteins. And that's another harm of this technology that we found out four years after rolling it out onto billions of people, you're not just making the spike protein alone. You may, may be making fragmented proteins that can cause all sorts of other harms and clotting and, and whatnot. And, so, the problem, and the problem with when they start making a synthetic mRNA, once again, your body will, will break down regular true RNA right away. Mm -hmm. But this, what they're putting in the, the platform doesn't, isn't broken down quickly. And so if it incorporates, and this is, I think, what we're seeing in some people, is they are now become a spike protein factory that doesn't stop. And we're not sure we have a way to stop. It. And gratefully, like Dr. McCullough pointed out, it's not everybody, but it's enough people that they should not be ignored. So is it fair to say then that these vaccine manufacturers uh, created this these vaccines with synthetic, the synthetic um, mRNA that has created diseases, heart disease, strokes, uh, neurological problems, everything that you've talked about, do these same manu uh, vaccine manufacturers sell the cures for the diseases that they're creating? Is that is that a fair thing to say? Do they sell other drugs that say treat uh, strokes or cardiovascular disease and so forth? Is that true? I find it ironic that Pfizer just bought a, spent $40 billion on a cancer treatment company. So I, I don't know. I, I'm not in I their mean, we're boardrooms. I'm not accusing them of I'm not in their boardrooms, it, but, but it, it's, it's, it's well, curious. It's yes. a fair comment that I can tell you in my clinical practice as an internist and cardiologist, I've never prescribed so many blood thinners in my career. Never. I mean, this is extraordinary. All day long, I'm confronted with blood clots of different scenarios. A paper to cite by Wu and colleagues from the FDA, Silver Springs, Maryland, a scientist of the FDA published this paper. Now, it's with the Janssen vaccine, the Janssen vaccine, which is now off the market. But to give you an idea, they published on thousands of blood clots that the FDA knew about. They were describing blood clots going from the ankle to the hip. 
ankle to the hip. We've never seen this in clinical medicine before. 11% of the cases in the Wu paper are fatal. So none of this is conjecture. We can actually stay within the bounds of the peer-reviewed literature mm -hmm. and understand what's going on. But there's a couple of historical points I think American public should be aware of. Carrico and Wiseman just received the Nobel Prize for their modification of this messenger RNA called pseudouridination, replacing one of the natural uh, base pairs, uh, uracil, with uh, pseudouridine. <clears throat> Pfizer and Moderna both decided strategically to, instead of replacing every so many uracils, to actually replace them all. And they took a messenger RNA that would have been broken down pretty quickly and made it essentially indestructible. And so that's what creates the messenger RNA is read by a ribosome, passed to another one, passed from cell to cell. And again, the disturbing thing is the companies that have not told us, when does this ever get out of the body? In order for a drug to be approved, it has to go through standard, what's called pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic testing. All of this was skipped. They never told us, when does the body get rid of this? When does the spike protein shut off? It's a genetic code. Now, the FDA, prior to the pandemic, has rules on genetic therapies. The window of safety concern on a genetic therapy is five years. Now, if we give a pill for diabetes, and we're testing this in a clinical trial, and I've done this, I've chaired data safety monitoring boards, made the FDA presentations. After 30 days, we say, listen, it's over with. The pill is out of the body, it's over with. With the conventional vaccines, which I've described for the committee, the, the window of concern from a regulatory perspective is two years. Anything that happens within two years, we have to con consider the vaccine could have caused it. But a genetic vaccine is five years. So my patients are asking me, Dr. McCullough, when is it over with? I took these shots in 2021. I realized they weren't safe. I said, I don't know. But a, a regulatory perspective would say five years of concern. Thank you so much, gentlemen. I, we will definitely do another round. Uh, this time, I'd like to hand it over to Senator Johnson. Well, first of all, thank you, Congresswoman. This is, uh, I know, not a real popular hearing for you to hold. Um, it's not a real popular thing that these two, that these uh, three doctors have, have been doing over the last three years. Um, I, I've actually got the full list of, of all of the torment you've gone through, but, but you've all been investigative, you've all been maligned, you've been vilified. Uh, attempts to be decertified, licenses restricted. Uh, it hasn't been easy. Uh, and what, what I do want to quick point out is we have three doctors in front of us that all had the courage and compassion to actually treat COVID patients. You know, think back in the, in, in the early days of COVID, we had no idea how, how deadly it was. And so it took real courage to be a nurse or a doctor on the front lines and, and, and do that. And so we, we have three doctors who did that. Dr. McCall, do you remember Dr. Ja? Uh, he, he was a Democrat witness in our November 19th, 2020 hearing on early treatment, um, who, when I asked the question, have you ever treated a COVID patient? He said, no, kind of a mic drop moment. We found out later, he never left his apartment until a couple months after the vaccine came out. That, that's how afraid he was he is or was the COVID czar for the Biden administration. But I know I've veered off course. First of all, let, let me say the first 45 minutes of this has just been a fabulous primer. And if, if, no, if people watching the video, if, you, if you've not watched anything else, watch that first 45 minutes. We've laid the groundwork. 
the question that's going through my mind, I've got all kinds of medical questions as well, but I want to ask the basic question. With all the peer-reviewed studies, with all the clinical analysis that, that all of you have seen, um, it's obvious to you, it's been obvious to me for years. You know, th th there's a reason. By the way, let's quick put up this chart, if we could. Uh, you have it in front of it. Th this, this is a chart that I first started developing in June of 2021. Uh, I, I was already watching the videos as of April, March and April. Okay, I remember April when there are a couple thousand deaths showing on the Vayer system. I had Francis Collins in front of me. I said, you know, what, 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 you know, are you looking at this? He admitted the six deaths from the Johnson Johnson, but he said very callously, well, Senator, people die when he was asking about the other thousands. By the way, back then, it was 46% of those deaths were occurring on day zero, one, or two. So I just put this chart together because, you know, obviously our hearings were about early treatment and how supposedly dangerous hydroxychloroquine was, or ivermectin, a horse medicine, right? I, I put this as a comparison, and you can see the difference. The, these, by the way, the, the top lines here are the, the FAERS, the, the FDA Adverse Event Reporting System. It just shows total deaths reported over 27 years for ivermectin, 37 years for hydroxychloroquine, flu vaccines, dexamethasone, Tylenol. You can see that the average deaths per year. Again, everything could potentially be dangerous, but you compare that to the COVID vaccine off of Vayers, we're up to almost 37,000 deaths worldwide. 24.4% of those deaths are occurring on days zero, one, or two following vaccination. Again, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical researcher, but I, I know Vayers doesn't prove causation, but man, that's a correlation that you ought to be looking at, okay? By the way, I, I also just, because one of the pushbacks on this where we gave billions of doses, so I finally did the calculation in terms of deaths per million dose. So for the COVID vaccine in the U.S., the deaths per million doses for COVID vaccine is 25.1. On average, it's hard to get this for flu, so we assume 70% of a flu vaccine administered was actually injected. The deaths per million dose for the flu vaccine, assuming 70% are injected, is 0 0.46. 0 0.46 versus 21, that's a 55-fold higher death per million rate for the COVID vaccine. So my question, I actually have a question. <laughs> Why isn't the rest of the medical community acknowledging this? I mean, I, you know, I, obviously, we, we've got eminently qualified doctors. I know how you've been vilified, how they've tried to marginalize you, but anybody who's listening to this panel realize these are highly qualified, compassionate doctors. What is happening? throughout our medical establishment? Um, I, I guess the honest, um, the honest thing to say is I have no idea. We have, we have jumped the rails. Um, we were, we're used to a, I serve as a pediatrician when I would give, I, I, I was comfortable with treatments if I thought they were effective with about a one in a million for vaccines a one in a million chance of getting it, what you were trying to prevent, a one in a million of death. I, I felt comfortable with that. So when you have something, and we knew very early, the signal was early, it wasn't, it wasn't late for the COVID vaccines. They were very early, probably within a month. We met, we met, we met criteria that previous 
vaccines had been taken off the market, whether it was Rose Shield or whether it was uh, swine flu and many others. There are a whole bunch of the times we make mistakes in medicine. What the country counted on is that not only the doctors would speak up, but then the regulatory bodies would say, okay, you're right, that met signal, we gotta pull it off. Um, I don't know what's going on because when I look at the Cleveland Clinic data, when there are 51,000 employees that are looked at and they study and they say, what's your risk of getting COVID? And it looks at how many vaccines you had. The lowest risk for getting COVID is if you've had zero vaccines. As you add vaccines, your risk to get COVID goes up. I've never seen a vaccine like this. That's not the basis of vaccines. They shouldn't have what we would call negative efficacy. That is a peer-reviewed, beautiful study from Cleveland Clinic, completely ignored. Um, I think that a lot of times, some of our colleagues, um, what I hear from most of my colleagues, Kirk, you're right, but I'm not gonna stick my head out. I'm gonna work one or two more years and then I'm retiring. I, I want to piggyback on Dr. Milhone's excellent comment. Fear. The simple answer is fear. The body of the profession of medicine is almost all employed now. The number of people that have spoken out have mostly been independent. And those who weren't independent did pay that price, lost their jobs for speaking truth. And are our colleagues awake? Are, are people getting these boosters? No, they're not. Because the people are awake. They're still pretty quiet as well. There's obviously a vocal 30% of Americans that are, are speaking out. We have a booster for something that's extinct and it's still being pushed by our government agencies. XBB 1.5 is now 0.0% prevalent. We're at JN1, which is 62% prevalent. We have a, a booster vaccine from Pfizer for something that doesn't exist and we still have a government pushing it. But we have physicians and we have healthcare systems that are dependent on the government teat. And they're nursing that teat for every dollar they get. And anybody that speaks against that cash flow gets the hatchet. So why are people not speaking up? I don't know why they forgot the oath that we all took. We took that oath and we paid the price. Would I pay the price over again? Would all you bet we would, because this is about humanity and it's about the long-term health of humanity. And so I just I encourage my fellow physicians around the world, speak up. Don't be afraid. Even if you're in the truth of one, be that voice of truth. And that's what we're we're up against, fear. And how do you overcome fear? With courage. I want to add to that. I, I think the body of practicing physicians and nurses and medical technologists and all the allied health professionals, the vast majority took the vaccines and were under mandates, under Biden's mandates to take the vaccines. They all have a deep conscious or subconscious fear themselves of what's in their bodies. They likely had their families vaccinated. They likely promoted these vaccines with their patients. Think about how deep this is. This goes back to doctors smoking cigarettes, advertising cigarettes, smoking in the operating room, saying that smoking cigarettes is good for them. It took 40 years before doctors reversed course and capitulated and said, oh, we were wrong on this. And, and in this horror, as they woke up uh, to, to, to recognize this, and the emperor of all maladies written by Mukherjee 
at the Dana-Farber Institute. He describes the lead lung cancer surgeon for Johns Hopkins. He was smoking as he was removing lung cancers and, and, and vehemently denied that smoking caused lung cancers and he himself died of lung cancer. You know, th these are historical types of observations that uh, I think will, will go down in history. There was an early Texas A&M survey done to show only 4% of doctors didn't take the vaccines. These doctors are at a premium right now because patients want some fair evaluation. As a doctor, I can fairly give somebody an opinion regarding an aortic valve problem because I don't have the problem myself. I can actually be objective. Once people, doctors have taken the vaccine, they simply can't be objective. And what we're hearing from patients is that they're being ignored and what's going on is called gaslighting, that they're told that this is in their head because the doctors themselves and the nurses do not want to come to their own personal recognition that they themselves have taken the vaccine. This is a unique problem that is going to bear out over time, and I hope that these individuals, in a sense, become aware. Uh, now, clearly, I have doctor after doctor, nurse after nurse coming to me saying, I've developed myocarditis. I've developed a blood clot. Now I'm regretful. But I'm hoping that they themselves don't have to develop a personal medical problem to become aware and be activated because they have a duty to warn others. I'll definitely have another round, but I'll yield. Thank you. Congressman Davidson. Um, thank you uh, for organizing this hearing. Thank you uh, for those of you who've really risked your livelihoods and and who knows what else uh, to, to speak the truth. And it's an honor to be able to uh, join you today and, and try to do something about it. Uh, a, we'll make it more public so people in the future will find primary source documents that speak the truth. And a lot of times I'm left going, well, that might be the only thing Congress can accomplish. It's been hard to pass laws. Uh, but one that I'm working on, look, I was a veteran. Uh, in the military, you get shot with all kinds of things. It's an assembly line process, uh, pre-deployment checklists. You're always getting new things. Probably some of them are experimental. Uh, so uh, I, I like that you've pointed out the distinction between mRNA vaccines and other vaccines. And I think people intentionally blur those lines to try to confuse people on that. Um, and when you think about the military, traditionally, it's a risk assessment. And you're essentially saying, hey, the risk is great enough uh, that, you know, the trade-offs merit whatever course of action you're deciding. So fundamentally, the military is in the risk assessment business. And right away, we knew uh, and we were briefed from the get-go that this was a, a, a virus, the COVID-19 uh, virus, was something that affected young, fit, healthy people in much less risky ways than people that were older, less healthy, anyone with comorbidities. And the very definition of young, fit, healthy people should be the active duty military force. So nevertheless, uh, the Biden administration mandated that everyone shall take the vaccine. We thinned out our military, uh, critical, critical uh, people that you know take years and hundreds of thousands of dollars to train uh, that even if you wanted to find somebody, not everyone can be uh, an Army Ranger, a Navy SEAL, a fighter pilot. Uh, and nevertheless, they were expelled. Now the administration is saying, oh, no, come on back. Because they kind of said, wow, we really do have some readiness consequences. 
but the people who are dealing with the health consequences. So I like that all of you have touched on the consequences of myocarditis. Perhaps that's the most well-documented uh, health case. And we've seen that in the active duty force. One of the amendments that we were able to get in the National Defense Authorization Act was a required study to say, what are the incidences of vaccine injury in the active duty force? Now, I, I'll admit I'm a little concerned that we're going to get an honest set of data because of some of the things that you guys have shared today uh, and, frankly, the way the administration has politicized everything about COVID. Um, but here's one of the things. We exempted the vaccine makers from liability, right? We didn't exempt uh, people who mandate the vaccine from liability. So in the private sector, I don't know which trial lawyers are working on lawsuits against all the uh, private employers that mandated vaccines of their own will. Uh, but in the federal government, uh, the Department of Defense mandated these things. And when you have injured veterans because they were directed to do things, the Veterans Administration provides disability compensation and claims. And so I'm working on legislation that would be presumptive if you are an active duty service member who was or a service member who was directed to take the vaccine and within one year of taking the vaccine, you developed myocarditis and then other things that uh, they'll go through the rulemaking process to determine, but specifically myocarditis because the data has been so well established on it, uh, the cause and effect. And that you would be presumptive, just like we did in the burn pit legislation, for example. So I just wonder if you could talk about, uh, you know, the, the responsible uh, party there, if the government has mandated that with the knowledge uh, of the risks and the consequences for uh, the veteran. And then how do we take care of um, not just myocarditis, but building the data set to show the level of injury uh, to these service members. Thank you, Congressman. Um, as someone who proudly wore the uniform back in the 1980s in the Air Force, and my colleague, Dr. Milhone, was also former Air Force, so we appreciate the, the line of questioning because it's near and dear to our hearts having proudly served this country. And I, I think it's tragic that we rolled it out on that young, healthy cohort, this experimental investigational um, product early on. and. Uh, Senator Johnson brought up early, um, the Department of Defense has a database. Their epidemiology, medical epidemiology database is the best in the world. And after the hearing we had uh, December or January, a year, year or so ago, they froze that. We had the data at that point. We know who was being injured and we saw marked rises in all sorts of conditions. And when he tried to request the information from them, they said, oh, we've got to update our database. And then they basically, a glitch, a glitch, and erased it. So yes, I mean, in, in, there should be, I, in, I mean, 231 um, uniformed service members, you know, present or previous, just filed for um, court-martial against uh, Secretary of Defense and others. And I think that's a reasonable action based on forcing our troops into something investigational that hampered the readiness of our nation. I get calls from military physicians around the country every week reporting to me the clotting they're seeing. The lost another pilot today, 
Um, got another one sidelined, myocarditis. Another you know, 40-year-old had a heart attack. Another 27-year-old had a heart attack. Another 22-year-old has an 18-inch clot. Mind you, it went on for over two hours. You can download the full program and watch all of it. But I'm sure that other journalists will begin to consider writing about this, interviewing them. We will be having all three of these gentlemen on my program in the next couple of weeks. Share this information. Mind you, we don't advertise, we don't promote, we don't have a web person doing social media outreach. It's just word of mouth. So share this program. Have a nice day. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we 